Pastor Tim Keller was once being interviewed about his faith and what it means and what he believes. And he was talking about some of the most profound moments he's had in the development of his walk with Christ. And he talked about a period in his life where during a season he was battling cancer and going through treatment. And through that entire treatment, he had a lot of time where he was bedridden. And so he would fill his time with a lot of different things. But he decided that he was going to read through this one particular book called The Resurrection of the Son of God by a theologian named N.T. Wright. And this particular book is one book in a set of three volumes. And all three volumes are about 800 pages or so each. And so in this book, it's about 800 pages just about the biblical historical case for the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the implications that come for those who believe in that. And Tim Keller said when he finished the book, after reading all of these pages, he closed the book, and he had this deep realization, and he said out loud, this really happened. Now, he'd been a pastor and a minister and a theologian for years at this point, and he had never had any major issues of doubt or issues with his faith. He had always believed in the resurrection, but after he reads this full tome, this full volume of all the evidence for this bodily resurrection of Christ, he said it was like the elevator went down one more floor and just knew in his gut that this was something that actually happened in the midst of time and space, that God sent forth his son in the fullness of time, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, who gave up his life for us on the cross, and then three days later walked out of an empty tomb after being raised from the dead. When it comes to our faith, when it comes to Christianity, If we're not careful, so much of the things that we profess can feel like ideas, can feel like stories, and they can feel like distant beliefs that we would hold on to somewhat casually, whether we think that they're true or not, because that's just how we've always thought and maybe the way that we've been brought up if you've been brought up in or around the church. But Christianity cannot be practiced this way especially when it comes to the crux, the center point, the most important part of our faith, which is the resurrection of Christ. Because Paul teaches us that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then we should be pitied above anyone else because we have this belief that our sins are forgiven and that we have this eternal hope in Christ. But if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then neither will we, and our hope is in vain, and our faith is in vain. Jesus said that he came to be the way, the truth, and the life. That he came to bring the truth into the world. And with that, we see this amazing and true claim that the king of this kingdom that we've been discussing over the past several weeks and months as we've been in the book of Luke, this king not only died for us, but was physically raised from the dead to change the course of history and the eternity of anyone who would dare believe such a claim. And if that is true, then it not only changes our eternal existence, but it changes everything about who we are from the inside out. And so today, as we finish Luke chapter 20, We're going to look over the next two weeks at Jesus teaching us about how his resurrection that was now just about a week away in the storyline of Luke's gospel, this resurrection that Jesus was going to bring forth would lead one day to the resurrection from the dead of anyone who trusted in him and followed after him. 
and how the knowledge of our own resurrection changes us deeply and calls us to not only a new way of life, but to see ourselves differently, recognizing that we have a new identity as followers of Jesus. And so next week, we're going to dig into what this idea of resurrection for believers, what this picture of eternal life looks like for us, and how it changes who we are. But before we get there, I want to focus on the first half of this interaction that Jesus has with this group of people called the Sadducees. And we're going to talk about resurrection, but I also want to look at how they presented their denial to Jesus. As they deny the resurrection, I want to see how they brought this accusation against Jesus. And I want us to think about ourselves and to try to see ourselves in these Sadducees and look at how we interact with God's word and how we come to God, whether it's looking for verification of things we already believe or if we are truly going to seek after God and being disciples of Christ, wanting to know the truth as God reveals it to us. And so today we're going to look at the setup as Jesus is preparing to teach about the resurrection in the face of these questions from the Sadducees. But today, let's look at the question itself and see if we can't get a deeper understanding of how we should approach the word of God and the truth that we believe when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 20, and for the next two weeks, we'll read verses 27 through 40. So this is the word of God. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring of his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, and being sons and daughters of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I love this verse. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and that your word is true. God, help us to understand what it means that your word is true. Help us to be people who come to you seeking to learn, seeking to understand, seeking to know what you would have us to know, instead of coming to you trying to either poke holes in things that we don't believe or find some sort of verification for the things that we already do. 
Now teach us to not be Sadducees, but to be disciples. To be those who would be defined by our trust and our obedience and our dedication to your word. And as we do that, as we pursue after you, as we come to your word seeking to learn about you, Father, I pray that you teach us the wondrous riches that you have for us in your word, that you teach us the truth of the gospel, and that you help us to see the amazing, audacious claim that because Christ has been raised from the dead, that anyone who puts their hope and their faith in Jesus is not only a new creation, they're not only forgiven of their sins, but we have been given a new identity and an eternal hope that one day we will receive the same resurrection as well. So God, speak to us and help us to be good listeners. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you've been around through much of this sermon series through the book of Luke, we have seen time and time again that as Jesus goes from town to town to town, preaching and teaching and healing, he is constantly met with opposition from the religious leaders. And so we've seen some several, several different groups of people come up to Jesus. We've seen scribes, we've seen Pharisees, and we've seen some of the chief priests. But these are the elite group of people that are coming to Jesus to challenge his authority and to challenge his teaching and to ultimately challenge the kingdom that he's bringing into the world. And now we see a new group of adversaries, the Sadducees. And I remember growing up in church, we had a song about all the different Jewish groups that lived and, and moved in the first century. And so the chorus went something like, I don't want to, I just want to be a sheep, I think was the chorus. You know what I'm saying? If you've grown up in church, maybe if you did a little children's choir when you were young, maybe you've sang this song. And so you go through each of these different religious groups that were active in the first century, and you sing a fun little rhyme about them using their name. So they would say, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not, wait for it, fair, you see, Right? It's nice. It's nice. And so when I hear that, when I hear the word Pharisee, that goes through my mind. But something about Sadducee is particularly ingrained in my DNA. And I cannot not read this word without saying, and he was approached by the Sadducees. Because they're so Sadducee. <laughs> and now you will too. Because they were, they were defined in the song by being sad. Which is a really unique thing for them because of how they are explained to us in Scripture says these Sadducees came to Jesus and listen to the defining characteristic that Luke puts in his gospel about this group of people. It says there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. What a way to be known. Those who deny that there is a resurrection. This is who they were. And we've seen all the different religious groups and kind of how they came to be and what their role was. And the Sadducees were, were groups of, of Jewish people who had become so influenced through the course of the Greek Empire that they became very Hellenistic in their way of thinking and had all but abandoned anything that made them distinctively followers of God. In particular, the belief that there is a resurrection of the dead. But even if we didn't go that far, the fact that they were even defined not by something that they affirm, but something that they deny. I wonder how often that is true about us. I wonder how often people think about us, whether it's individually or just by brand label of Christians. I wonder if we are more often known by the things that we deny than the things that we affirm. 
But that's who the Sadducees were. And when we look at how they approach Jesus, they sound like professional deniers. This story is bananas. It's the most just bizarre, intricate story that they could possibly think of because they had a mission in mind. They were coming to make a case against the resurrection, and they didn't care about anything else. And they come to Jesus not trying just to outright start a battle about if the resurrection is true or not. They weren't just outright denying the resurrection. They wanted to come to Jesus and present this logical scenario and poke holes in the belief of the resurrection so that hopefully Jesus would fall through one of those holes and everything else would fall apart. They thought if they could just put him through enough logistic gymnastics that he would have to trip and fall and everybody around would say, you know what? I don't think the resurrection is true either, because if he can't answer that question, then there must not be any truth. And so this is what they said. Here's the scenario that they present. They say, let's imagine that there is a group of seven brothers, and one of them marries this woman, but they have no children, and he dies. Well, you know that Moses taught us that if that happens, then his brother is supposed to come and marry this woman and care for her. And this act was called a kinsman redeemer. Because during this time, we've talked about this before, but widows and orphans were the most vulnerable people in society because they were at a constant disadvantage. And so women were often barely educated, if educated at all formally, They were usually expected just to tend to the details of the home, and they couldn't own property. And so if their husband were to die, they had no job, no education in which to get a job, and no ability to own property for themselves. And so that husband's property would be given away, and so this woman would be left with nothing. And so in the Mosaic law, it was the responsibility of the family, of the brother of that man, to come in and to marry this woman and to care for her so that she wouldn't be alone and so that she would have something and be provided for. And so they said his brother needs to be a good kinsman redeemer. He needs to follow the Mosaic law. And so he comes and he marries the woman. But then they don't have any children and he dies. But there's still five more brothers. And so she marries the next brother. And then he dies, and then he marries the next brother. And at this point, someone should alert the authorities. (laughs) Because there seems to be a common denominator in all these dudes dying, and we might possibly have a bit of a Black Widow scenario on our hands, and she might be killing these dudes, but uh, clearly that's not their point, so let's move on. And so she goes through the list of, or he goes through the list of all of these brothers, and they all die, no children, so this woman just gets married to married to married to married to be cared for, and then finally she dies, probably out of exhaustion from killing all of her husbands and so now all of them are dead and they said okay teacher tell us when the resurrection comes who is she married to she clearly can't be married to all seven of them and so tell us who she's married to tell us how this resurrection thing could actually possibly work in such a scenario as this and so what's happening here is they're trying to pit jesus against Moses, trying to have Jesus deny the Mosaic law or cause some kind of conflict of the Mosaic law. They're putting Jesus up against marriage itself in the way that God has designed marriage, and seemingly also against his own words because Jesus teaches about marriage and divorce and how all of that works. And so they come to Jesus not seeking to understand clearly because this is an insane scenario. 
They come to Jesus trying to set Jesus up and to tear down what they don't believe in. Not to gain insight, but to come and to show how smart they are and how intellectually superior they are so that they can put down this silly notion of resurrection so all the people will see how dull and mundane and broken this is. And so now people will finally be able to think and understand clearly. And maybe this sounds familiar. Because this tends to be the way that people deal with one another anyway. This, unfortunately, is not a method that died out in the first century, but we see all around us, whether it's in politics, whether it's in religion, whether it's in sports, people come in with their preconceived notions of what they believe to be true, and instead of coming and listening to other people, we come with our guns blazing and our our little needles out ready to poke holes in everything that we can so that the other system falls apart so that we can stand atop and be supreme when all the dust settles. And so we could look at this and say, well, maybe this is a call to being better apologists. Maybe we need to learn how to argue better so that we can better defend our faith so that when people come and they have all these accusations and all these things trying to poke holes in our faith and our belief system, then we would be able to knock those things away and win the argument. But this isn't a call to being better apologists and better apologetics, but it's a call to being disciples. See, I think the place where we could probably see this, if we were honest, when we see the Sadducees making this kind of accusation, at least I can see this in myself, that there's a little Sadducee that lives inside of me. And not just when I deal with other people, but even when I come to Scripture. Because maybe you're like me, and maybe you have grown up in the church, and maybe you've read, and maybe you've studied, and maybe we have very hard-line beliefs about things. And it's very rare to find somebody, especially when it comes to Christianity, who does not have at least some things that we hold to very dearly and very tightly. And if we're not careful, while these things are very good, we can find ourselves guilty of approaching God's word very closed off. And we can come to Scripture ready to fight instead of ready to learn. Or we can come to Scripture looking for it to affirm the things that we already believe instead of coming to God's Word and asking the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and shape our minds and conform our hearts and renew us daily in His Word and teach us who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to think and what we're supposed to believe. And as we look at this example of these Sadducees who came trying to trick Jesus to affirm their own beliefs, We need to see that as an example to be rejected. And as followers of Jesus, we need to learn to be disciples, learning to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen more than we speak. And as I say that out loud, I become overwhelmingly convicted because I talk a lot, especially to God or sometimes at God. I just like to talk. And so sometimes we need to learn, instead of like the Sadducees coming with all of these things and all these hurdles that we expect God to jump through, coming to God's word and coming to times of prayer saying, God, I need you to speak and I'm here to listen so that I can understand who I'm supposed to be as a follower of Christ. Learning to be students and disciples. And when we do, we're going to find that Jesus speaks. 
And when he speaks, he teaches us what we need to know. Paul says that all scripture is breathed out by God, and it is beneficial for making us complete in Christ, teaching us where we need to be taught, encouraging us where we need to be encouraged, correcting us and rebuking us in the times when we need to be corrected and rebuking. God's word is perfectly suited to shape us in to who we're supposed to be, but sometimes we just have to shut up and let it happen. And so let's learn from that example of the Sadducees and reject that kind of approach to God. Because when Jesus speaks, he makes things clear. And that's exactly what happens in this next section of Scripture. And it reminded me of this TV show that I watched one episode of, in part because it made me feel uncomfortable. It was a show called Brain Games. I don't know if it's still on. I don't know if you can find it anywhere. But I saw one episode of it because there was a lot of a, a lot of pre-running for it, a lot of commercials and a lot of buildup and a lot of hype for it. And so I watched it, and it was one of the most deeply disturbing hours of my life. Because this TV show, the whole purpose of it was to show you how little we actually pay attention. And so they would set up all these games and were intentionally trying to distract you. And you go into it knowing they're trying to distract me. And I wanted to be really clever, and I wanted to figure them out. And time after time again, they would do something, and I would think, wait, when did that happen? Or how did that happen? Or I didn't see that happen. And it was very confusing and very strange, and it made me a little queasy, and I felt really, I didn't know which way was up. It was like after I watched The Truman Show, if you're old enough to remember that movie. I didn't look in a mirror the same way for about two weeks because I was convinced that someone was watching me. In the same way, after watching Brain Games, I was convinced that the whole world was just a trick, and I was missing everything, and I had no, it was a very disturbing afternoon because we like to think that we pay attention and we like to think that we understand how things work and that we are very perceptive people but the reality is we can be very easily distracted and that's what the Sadducees are trying to do because they tell this story about this man with six brothers and this incredibly unlikely scenario that all of them die and they all end up just marrying this woman so that she'll be taken care of and yet none of them ever have children. It's this situation that is bizarre and the percentages of it taking place have to be basically zero. But they're just trying to see if Jesus would get lost in the details. But he sees through the nonsense. And so Jesus corrects them and lets them know that it doesn't matter if this scenario had a thousand brothers. Because this is not a story about eternity. In verse 34, it says, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore. I think this is an interesting interaction here, because if you've seen Jesus interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests as we've looked through Luke, very rarely does he give a straight and direct answer like this. Normally, like last week, when the, when the scribes and the chief priests asked him about giving tribute or paying tithes to the Roman Empire, Jesus responded with that weird thing where he said, somebody give me a coin. And the, all the religious leaders are, here we go, of course, he's going to do this thing because this is what he always does to us. And now here comes the question, and Jesus says, whose face is on this? And they thought, there's the question, because that's what he did every single time these religious leaders would approach him. He would turn this around on them and ask them a question and have them follow the logic train of thought. But here, as Jesus talks about the resurrection, he doesn't do that. 
He doesn't respond with a question. He gives a very direct answer, and it shows us the incredible importance of believing rightly about the resurrection of the dead. And so he sees through the nonsense, and with one statement, Jesus, like this amazing spiritual wolf, just blows away all of the things that are cluttered. He huffs and puffs and blows their house down, and all of these different brothers and all these different scenarios, he wipes those things away so that the people gathered around can see clearly. He says marriage is not something that's designed for eternity. And this is one of the things that when I officiate a wedding and we go through premarital counseling and all this stuff, one of my few requirements as far as things that are important in a wedding that I officiate is we use the traditional vows found in the Book of Common Prayer that have been used for hundreds and hundreds of years now. The things that you think about when you think about marriage vows, the whole till death do us part, I promise in sickness and in health for richer or poor, for better or for worse, that kind of thing. Because Nothing personal if you wrote your own thing for your wedding. I'm not casting a blanket statement over this. But sometimes when people write their own vows, sometimes they're not actually vows. Sometimes they just say things they love about each other, which is sweet and has a place in a marriage. Sometimes the vows don't have a lot of weight. It's things like, I promise to make you pancakes shaped like a Mickey Mouse every morning because they decide to get cute and all that kind of stuff. And it's adorable, and those things can have their place inside of a wedding. But when it comes to what you promise to another person when you are going to marry them once and for all for the rest of this life, it matters. And those vows teach us something about marriage, that it is a covenant and a commitment between two people, not just based on an emotion, but standing before all their friends and family, and most importantly, in the presence of God, they say, I am going to be with you no matter what. Whether we're healthy or sick, whether we're rich or poor, in the good times and the bad, I am in this until death do us part. And that's why that's there. It comes from this teaching of Jesus about the resurrection that teaches us that marriage has its place and it is a beautiful gift given by God, but it is not designed for eternity. And so in that teaching, Jesus clears out all the clutter. And if you are a cluttery person, I can be a cluttery person. You have a cluttery office or a cluttery room. Sometimes there's just a very therapeutic thing that happens when you go through and purge and just get rid of it. And all of a sudden you can see the desk that you haven't seen in weeks or months or maybe even years. And it's like your brain starts working again and firing on different cylinders. And Jesus does that with his teaching on the resurrection. He says, let's get rid of all this stuff that you're trying to distract the people with. And let's see clearly what resurrection really is about. And when it comes to eternity, when it comes to life after death and what happens to Christians after they breathe their last, there's a lot of discussion and a lot of debate and a lot of distractions that come into that conversation. But Jesus is doing everything necessary here to make it very clear so that we can see the purity and the power of our hope in the resurrection. And what Jesus communicates is two simple things. One, that it's happening. And two, that it changes everything. He says they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and sons of God and being sons and daughters of the resurrection, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he called the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. 
So Jesus says this resurrection is going to happen and it is real and you can use whatever logistical games you want, but that does not take away the truth that one day all those who put their faith in Christ will be raised again and made new and that will be an eternal existence once and for all, for all of eternity. And that starts at the moment of salvation when our spirits are made alive inside of us, when God saves us out of our sin and into new life and it changes everything about who we are, how we should think, how we should see ourselves, how we act and where we will be and what we will do for the rest of forever. And so next week when we come together, we are going to talk about these specific things that Jesus says about the hope that we have in the resurrection. What we should believe about our future hope because of Christ, how it changes who we are now and who we will be for the rest of time. But I want to encourage you to read through this this week. Several times. It's just a few verses, 13 verses here. Read through this passage of Scripture. And as you come to this passage of Scripture, don't come like Sadducees trying to figure out all the things that we can't understand or that we're trying to poke holes in or trying to affirm something that we already believe, but come with open hearts asking the Holy Spirit to teach us to understand the beauty of the resurrection and to make it real. And that much like with with Dr. Keller as we finish reading this passage of Scripture, that God would take that belief that we already hold to and drop it another floor to where we would know that, yes, Christ indeed has raised from the dead, and because of that, I have a promise that one day I will as well. And so let's spend this week preparing our hearts to hear Jesus teach us who we are in light of his resurrection as we await our own. Let's pray.